If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. As you may already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine. And we're offering you the chance to try six issues of Britain's best-selling history magazine for just $9.99. That's a saving of 72% on the shop price. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. And if you're based in the US, you can subscribe for just $49.99 for 13 issues, saving 65%. To find out more and for all other countries, head to buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. Both these offers end on the 15th of May, 2021. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 saw a confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union escalate to the edge of nuclear war. Historian Serhi Plocky is the author of a new account of the crisis, Nuclear Folly. And in today's episode, he spoke to Matt Elton about how the crisis unfolded and the factors that led the two sides back from the brink. 
So your fascinating new book explores the Cuban Missile Crisis. Do you think it's fair to say that it was one of the most powerless moments that the world has ever faced? Well, I am certainly prepared to say that. Uh, Again, I had my doubts before I started my research on this book, and uh, I frankly thought that it it was maybe a little bit overrated in terms of how close we got to the nuclear war, but I don't have uh, that kind of doubts anymore. There is a couple of uh, cases uh, that, uh, or a couple of episodes that I discuss in my book where the nuclear war didn't start just by sheer luck. Uh, the uh, captain of the um, uh, Soviet submarine was already gave order to prepare uh, for firing the uh, nuclear-tipped torpedo, and only because of an accident, a signalman got stuck with his uh, searchlight in the hatch of the submarine that uh, the the order was not implemented, that gave additional 20 seconds or something like that to a senior commander to see that the uh, submarine was not actually under attack. And what that means is that uh, while the previous, or at least the, the dominant narrative of the crisis places a lot of emphasis on the decision-making process, in Washington in particular. There are other components of the crisis that are less known to the general public and to many scholars as well, and they involve the decision-making process in Moscow, but also the cases where the two leaders, Khrushchev and Kennedy, really lost control over their troops, either on the ground or in the air, and where the decision to start or not to start a nuclear war, to launch or not to launch the uh, uh, nuclear-tipped torpedo, was not even in the hands of those of those leaders that we are so much uh, fascinated with, with them, with their decision-making, and, and that get uh, lion's share of attention. Fairly enough, but again, the most the most scary moments were the moments where they really were not in control, and I, the, the submarine uh, episode is one of those. To rewind for people who may not be wholly familiar with what we mean when we talk about this crisis, when can we say it started? When can we trace its roots back to? And um, who were the? What was the sort of political situation that led to it? Well, the uh, crisis really started in uh, the, um, the the discovery of the Soviet missiles on Cuba uh, came in uh, mid-October 1962. The decision uh, by Khrushchev to put missiles on Cuba were made a few months before that, uh, in late May and early June of 1962. But uh, answering your question, I would put the start and the beginning of the crisis even one year earlier, and that would be April of 1961, uh, 60 years ago. And uh, uh, that was the um, failed uh, invasion uh, by the American-backed exiles to Cuba to um, topple the regime of Fidel Castro. Um, Kennedy, uh, who gave uh, gave uh, okay, gave approval to go ahead with the uh, with the operation, um, wanted 
that operation to be to a degree clandestine in a sense, not to show the American hand. And when the um, uh, operation started to encounter all sorts of issues and problems because Castro was very effective in mobilizing defenses, he refused to send uh, any American troops uh, into the battle. Uh, for a number of reasons, political reasons, he promised he promised new type of relations to the uh, Latin American countries, uh, and that led eventually to the to the collapse of the entire undertaking to a major victory by Castro. But there were two uh, important consequences of those developments. One was that Khrushchev thought that he was dealing with really very unexperienced, indecisive leader whom he can push around, and who could swallow the, the Soviet missiles being delivered to Cuba. The other, other consequence was that Castro got really frightened by what happened. Both Castro and Khrushchev expected that there would be another invasion of Cuba, and this time the Americans would go all the way. And Castro, uh, Castro really... Um, mm, attacked almost uh, uh, Khrushchev with requests for help and assistance. At some point, the, the implicit threat was that if he doesn't get it from Moscow, he is actually going to make a closer alliance with Beijing. And these two, two factors, again, they come, they originate in this failure of the Bay of Pigs Invasion. So I would say that the, the, the early origins of the crisis would be um, a year, almost a year and a half before it started, in a sense, before the Soviet missiles were detected on Cuba. One of the many fascinating things about your book is that obviously this is a story that reaches such a fever pitch. There's often a lot of attention on what happened later on. But I'd never given much thought to the actual physical undertaking of putting these missiles onto the island of Cuba. Can you talk us through how that process worked and what that involved? Well, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, like the Russian Empire before, were almost a landlocked empire. So it was taken decades and centuries for the Russian Tsars to get to the Baltic Sea, to get to the Black Sea. And uh, um, it, it was not a your classic maritime empire. It was land-based empire. The empire that was engaged, and then the Soviet Union was engaged in numerous wars, but all of those wars were in Europe or Eurasia, so relatively close to the, to the borders of the empire and then the Soviet Union that were expanding all the time. Now, what we had with Cuba is for the first time, they were trying to project their power across the Atlantic, bring it all the way to Caribbean, and that was a major, major challenge. They brought more than 40,000 uh, people uh, to, the, to the island. They brought uh, the uh, ballistic uh, missiles. They brought tactical uh, nuclear weapons. They sent their um, submarines. There were four submarines. Again, uh, they had, they, they had nuclear-tipped torpedoes. So that was enormous logistical undertaking for the Soviet Union. The equipment that they had was not designed to function in the in the tropical or subtropical uh, conditions. It was designed to function in the in the mm, far north or, or in Europe. Um, 
And uh, uh, again, there was a logistical problem. The other issue was that they had to do that in secret, right? Khrushchev didn't want Kennedy to know about the missiles until they were battle ready, and then he would he would announce that uh, they were there. So, for for the secrecy reasons, they were sending those forty thousand troops in really inhuman conditions. The guys were put in the in the uh, twin decks, overheated twin decks. They were not allowed outside to breathe fresh air until they, they got all in the Atlantic and even then only during nighttime. And once they were approaching Cuba again, all this all this possibility to be on the tag disappeared as well. That contributed at the end to the to the probably one of the major U.S. intelligence failures in the U.S. history, or certainly in the history of the 20th century, because the U.S. was late to detect the missiles. They at the end estimated that there were only 10,000 instead of 43,000 troops on the island. They never learned until the end of the Cold War that there were also tactical weapons. But the price that the, the, the Soviet soldiers and sailors and other paid for that was, was uh, really enormous. In, I, I have an episode in my book where I describe that one of the people on the board of the Soviet ship had uh, appendicides. And they wouldn't leave him on on the in the hospital uh, somewhere in the Mediterranean. They were okay with him dying on the ship after the operation that didn't go well. But the main concern was secrecy. So they were prepared to pay for that secrecy with, with lives and, and certainly with, with a lot of suffering. But they got what they wanted in terms of secrecy. So what was Kennedy's reaction when he was told about the situation? Well, his first words were, he can't do that to me, <laughs> which, which, again, I, I had to explain, who is he? And, and uh, it, it, it was about, about uh, Khrushchev, and Kennedy was taking that quite personally. He, he called um, <clears throat> uh, Khrushchev later in conversation with his um, brother, Robert Kennedy, a liar, and he added a couple of words that I, I don't think I can actually, <clears throat> I, I can mention on ear. So Kennedy was really upset. And the reason for that was that Khrushchev promised uh, to him uh, both uh, through the official uh, communication, but also through the back channel that they had, that he would do nothing to uh, upset Soviet-American relations before the end of the year, before the congressional elections that the United States had in November of 1962. And uh, he also promised not to put or declared that he would never put the offensive missiles uh, on Cuba, saying that we don't need that, we have enough uh, ballistic missiles. That was official statement. So uh, Kennedy Kennedy looked at that as really a personal, personal betrayal. So he can't do that to me. So forget the Soviet Union, forget the United States. He can't do that to me. And uh, what that meant was that the, the, from from, uh, from the start go of, of the crisis, one, it started to explode really with the um, the discovery of the missiles, there was zero trust between between the two leaders. And uh, the um, idea that, okay, you can engage diplomacy and you can talk to, to uh, uh, 
Khrushchev and somehow solve out those things was not really on the agenda. Again, there would be a lot of correspondence between the two leaders, but there was zero trust. The irony of the situation is that the experience of the crisis frightened and scared the two leaders enough to rebuild that trust. And the foundation for the trust was that both of them feared the nuclear war. Both of them didn't want that nuclear war to happen. So the crisis ends with something absolutely unbelievable. The solution to the crisis is based on trust. One, Kennedy promises not to attack Cuba, right? So that is, that is the foundation of the deal. Another foundation of the deal is that he promises that six months from, from the moment when they agreed on that, he would withdraw the American missiles from Turkey, the Jupiter missiles, and that Khrushchev would not tell anybody that that was part of the deal. And, and the, the, the most amazing thing actually is that both of them stuck to that deal. Neither Khrushchev was not talking about the, the American missiles in Turkey, and Kennedy honored, of course, his, his promise not to invade Cuba. The, the, the transformation, absolutely unbelievable, and foundation for that, for that level of trust that eventually developed was that they realized that the guy on the other side doesn't want the nuclear war as much as I don't want it. Other than being united by this fear of nuclear war, is it fair to say that these two figures, Kennedy and Khrushchev, were otherwise polar opposites? And did your research in the course of this book change your view of them at all? Well, they, they were polar opposite in many ways. Um, Kennedy was born in 1917, the year of the Russian Revolution, uh, born to a, to a family of uh, a millionaire. And, and uh, so in that sense was an embodiment of American capitalism, whether you look at that from the United States, from Britain or from the Soviet Union. Khrushchev was really, his career was, was uh, as a political leader, was shaped by the Russian Revolution. He went into the Red Army, he joined the, the Communist Party there, and the revolution also um, really didn't, didn't allow him to get proper education. He was very talented in many ways, but he didn't have formal education when, of course, Kennedy goes to, to Harvard. And, and uh, from that point of view, in, in terms of the um, uh, generations, in terms of the educational background, in terms of what, what kind of politics propelled those two people uh, to, to the top of their respective countries, those two leaders could not be more different. Uh, and uh, um, again, uh, another important issue where they were different was that Kennedy was extremely inexperienced. And uh, uh, Khrushchev saw that. After their first meeting uh, in Vienna in 1961, he commented to his aides that, well, the, the, this man is really inexperienced and almost immature. And that was also one of the reasons why he thought that he could get away with missiles in Cuba. So th they're very different. What, what unites them at the end is this concern about, about the possibility of the nuclear war. In, in terms of whether, whether 
I, I was surprised uh, uh, by by um, looking at, at their biographies. There were a couple of things in both cases where I learned something that I didn't know about, and I said, "Wow." <laughs> With, with Khrushchev, that was his visit in 1959 to the United States. So it was before Kennedy. And that, for me, tells a lot about him and his personality. So to show off, he is flying to the United States at the Soviet airplane that at that time was the biggest airplane in the world. The problem is that it is not tested. And the engineers find that there are uh, little, very small cracks in the engine that can grow, can grow big. But Khrushchev says, no, I'm flying to the United States on that plane. And what they do along the route on the Atlantic, they place the Soviet ships all the way from Gibraltar to, the, uh, to, uh, to New York in the case there is an emergency landing of the airplane. But he is prepared to, to take that kind of risk to make an impression on, on the world opinion, to, to make an impression on Eisenhower. And that told me a lot about, about the man. You could really expect a lot of crazy things from him. Uh, in terms in terms of uh, Kennedy, um, I was surprised again. It goes against against the the, the dominant narrative of the crisis that uh, during the first week of the crisis he was a hawk. He was someone who was advocating against his, members of his executive uh, committee of the National Security Council. He was advocating the idea of the um, attack. Air attack on the air uh, on the missile sites on Cuba, which we now know would probably lead to certainly a war and most likely nuclear war, because Khrushchev considered giving the right to the commanders on the ground to use the tactical nuclear weapons in defense. So from that point of view, if if Kennedy would would succeed during the first week, probably we would we would end up with uh, with the the. Maybe, maybe regional, but, but certainly, certainly a war and a very possible uh, nuclear war as well. Uh, and again, that that comes out of his inexperience. That comes out of him really being vulnerable to the political pressures, because his main concern at that time during the first week is: if I do nothing, I I would be impeached. So, so uh, and again, when you read that kind of uh, statements caught on tape, on the secret tapes that uh, Kennedy had in, in the White House, uh, again, for me, that, that was surprising. It was also scary. It was scary in, in both cases, for learning the things that I just described about Khrushchev and learning about Kennedy's position during the first week of, of the crisis. And it took Kennedy and his advisors, I think, almost a whole week to come up with a response. What was their response in the end? And did it take Khrushchev by surprise? Well, uh, they spent one week really going back and forth on what to do. And uh, eventually decided to declare blockade, not to allow uh, any uh, new uh, um, weapons to Cuba, but blockade technically in, in the international law means the act of war. So they called it quarantine. <laughs> uh, and uh, the reason why they, they 
thought that they could take this one week to deliberate was that Kennedy's consideration of how long it would take to leak the news to the media in the United States. So the concern was not how long it would take the Soviets to get the missiles ready. How much time do we have? But how much time do we have before the news leaked to the media? The problem was, of course, that during that week, that was exactly the week that the Soviets needed to get their missiles ready. So by the time um, Kennedy goes on TV and declares the imposition of the, of the blockade called quarantine, uh, at least a couple of the of the uh, Soviet uh, missile squ- uh, squadrons or missile sites, they're already prepared to fire, and they can uh, uh, get in terms of the the range, they can get as far as uh, Washington D.C. and suburbs of New York at that time. And and was there surprise from the other side about their response? Well, uh, uh, that uh, on on the other side there was a relief. There was a relief because they were, uh, again, I I also realized it's not just leaders, probably all of us, of course. We are shaped by our previous experiences. And for Khrushchev, the previous experience with Cuba was Kennedy's landing on the island. So that was the expectation, and they they thought that that would happen, and they discussed different scenarios of what to do either to allow the commanders to use the um, nuclear tactical weapons or to say that, well, we turn this this nuclear arms to Castro. So now the United States is involved in war with Cuba and we have nothing to do with that. So that was one. And uh, so when they learned that there was just a blockade, they said, okay, thank God. He he's not he's not the, the 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 immediate immediate threat of the war disappeared and then Khrushchev he immediately started to retreat, but uh, was doing that in the way that was not immediately obvious to to Kennedy and again Khrushchev was in retreat from from the very beginning but was being Khrushchev and quite adventurous was bargaining and and doing this and that so at the end the situation was getting worse and worse from one day to another, to a degree that uh, Khrushchev loses control over his troops on on, uh, Cuba and his generals against the orders from Moscow order a shutdown of the American airplane U-2, which very well could trigger the war if if, uh, Kennedy was inclined to respond in kind. So there was already a shooting war starting. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, We are maybe not in the middle of the new arms crisis, but we are certainly at the beginning of it. And uh, um, again, I I hope we will not need another Cuban crisis type of a situation to to remind the world that uh, it's it's time to go back to the the negotiation table, try to introduce uh, rules and verification and so on and so forth. What eventually led Khrushchev to um, stand down or perform a sort of a U-turn, I suppose? Well, again, he, he, he was in this retreat from early on. His, his condition was, uh, if we can get from Kennedy promise not to invade Cuba, we are the winners in that situation. But then he was throwing additional, additional, of course, as a negotiation tool, uh, additional conditions. 
when he really decided that, okay, the time is up, it's when he learned that the um, two things, basically. One was that the American uh, Air, uh, Strategic Air Command was on high alert DIFCON 2, which is next to the conditions of the war. And they were flying their missions not only uh, around North America, but they were flying all the way into the Mediterranean, turning uh, in, in Western Mediterranean, uh, in, in, or Eastern Mediterranean rather, in, in, uh, over Italy and, and Yugoslavia. So for him, that was an indication that the Americans were prepared to the war and were not in Cuba or over Cuba, but were prepared to deliver nuclear strike at the Soviet Union. And another, another of course, uh, very, very uh, concerning thing for him was the shooting down of U-2 plane. So he, he thought that, okay, th this time around, that, that could happen. And to um, communicate his, his readiness to, to accept Kennedy's conditions, uh, he ordered Radio Moscow to, translate, uh, to transmit his letter making sure that in that way it would get to the White House in no time. Because if you do that through diplomatic channels, it's amazing. Another big surprise to me, a shocking surprise, was that it was taking up to 24 hours for the letter to go to the from Kremlin to the American embassy. Then they couldn't just send it like that through, through um, telegraph or telephone. They have to cipher it because those were the instructions. Then it was going to the, to the State Department where they had to decipher it. And then they had to bring it to the to, to, uh, White House. And you think about the time difference anywhere between eight and nine hours, and those are the leaders who are sleeping at that time, so that can add another eight to nine hours before the uh, before the leader get get the word for, from the other side. So one of the one of things that they did after after the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, there was this back channel, and, and they created a telephonic communication system where they could could. Uh, communicate uh, in, in, in almost in real, in real time, yeah. What's remarkable for me, listening to all of this, is how close it sounds like things were to at any point spiralling out of control. Is that, is that a fair assessment? It is. Well, there was more than one point where things really spiralled out of control. And I mentioned two of them, the, the, the um, ep episode with submarine and then the uh, shooting down of the American airplane over Cuba. And those two involve, uh, involved uh, the Soviet side. Now, uh, the most tense, uh, the, 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 probably the, the most dangerous moment of the crisis, uh, it was um, Saturday, um, uh, October 27 if i am not mistaken it isn't the right the right the right date is in the book but it seems to me October 27 that Kennedy gets a report that an american u2 plane another u2 plane that was on a mission over the north pole to collect air samples to figure out whether the soviets were uh, testing nuclear weapons or not they were doing that on the on the regular basis just lost its way because the the electronic equipment didn't work properly near the uh, near North Pole, so they had to orient the pilots had to orient themselves uh, using stars 
and, and, and star constellations. So he lost his way and ended up uh, in the Soviet airspace over Chukotka. And the, the Soviets scrambled their, their MiG fighters to get to him. Uh, the, the, the U-2 was flying higher than they actually could reach, which saved it. But the Americans sent their own fighters to protect the U-2. The fighters are on high alert, and the only weapon that they have is actually a nuclear-tipped missile. <laughs> so this is, this is the only weapon that they have, and they fly trying to protect U-2 from the uh, MiG airplanes. And the, the very fact that the uh, um, U-2 is over the Soviet space and uh, that it is detected by the Soviets sends uh, really chills to, to the, the, the Secretary of, of Defense McNamara, Kennedy himself, because the expectation is the Soviets will decide that this is the last reconnaissance flight before the nuclear attack on the Soviet Union and could decide to do the first strike themselves. Uh, eventually, again, it's, it's dissolved and, and Kennedy apologized to, to Khrushchev in letter, but it's already after, after the, 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 tensions, the, the tensions were dissolved and the, the most acute stage of the crisis came to an end. What were the political repercussions for both uh, the Soviet leaders and those in the US? Well, um, there was a dramatic change of uh, the the distribution of power in relations between the two leaders. Before the Cuban Missile Crisis and through most of the crisis, Khrushchev was really in the in the driving seat. He was the, the, the one who was setting the agenda, setting the pace, and, and Kennedy was reacting, all the time reacting. Once the Cuban Missile Crisis ended with Khrushchev's agreement to withdraw, the power relations changed completely. Now it was Kennedy who was setting the agenda, who was pushing for, the, for certain things, was prepared to take uh, risk to the, the, the question that they, they disagreed on whether the deal that they reached included also the bombers capable of delivering um, uh, um, atomic bombs. And, and Khrushchev was saying no, and Kennedy was saying yes, and you have to remove them, otherwise, uh, otherwise the crisis and potential threat of the war would continue. So it, there is a dramatic change in, in those uh, terms. So Kennedy is not perceived as a weak president anymore, either in the United States or outside of the United States. And uh, uh, the whole thing is viewed uh, is is um, viewed as a defeat for uh, for Khrushchev, both outside because what people see and what media sees is that he agreed to withdraw the nuclear missiles. What the world doesn't know that he also got out of that Kennedy's promise to to, to withdraw the the American missiles from Turkey, and uh, Khrushchev is removed from power two years after after the end of the crisis, uh, and there is a connection between the Cuban Missile Crisis and his removal. I'm not trying to say that okay, if he would the the missiles would stay in Cuba, that there would be a different outcome, but uh, Khrushchev's uh, 
colleagues, members of the party presidium, who eventually removed him, presented a long list of his of his uh, sins and his his missteps and so on and so forth. And Cuba was really feature, uh, featured really very very uh, prominently on that list. So that was uh, one of the certainly contributing factor to his removal because. The, the people around him realized that uh, he was really playing with the fire, with the fire of the nuclear war, that it was extreme case of adventurism. They saw that he actually was scared himself. And uh, um, again, that certainly, that certainly didn't help him with, the, with his um, standing, political standing among his own peers or the, the, the members of his inner circle. That idea of missteps is, I think, a really interesting one. Do you think it's right to see this episode as, instead of being uh, about competence or necessarily wisdom, it's just about a series of missteps that somehow didn't lead to disaster? Well, uh, my my, uh, book is titled uh, Nuclear Folly. Really, the title that I, I wanted for that book was The March of Folly, and that the, the 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 title has been already taken by Barbara Tuckman. It's a, it's a, a, a prize winning book, uh, but uh, the, the, there is, there is a connection between Barbara Tuckman and the Cuban Missile Crisis in the sense that her book, The Guns of August, where it is a lot about misunderstanding and misperception, was published a few months before the crisis. And Kennedy loved the book. He was giving it to his military commanders. And the the idea of possible misstep and misunderstanding was always on his mind. But even despite of that, he couldn't actually avoid avoid making one mistake after another. And uh, my book is is, uh, uh, one of its contributions is actually show how uh, how many of those missteps, misunderstandings and misperceptions were there. And uh, the um, signal or maybe message to us today is, yes, there are improvements in in uh, um, communication, that there are all sorts of other things that are different today than they were back in 1962. But this idea that the leaders are really informed by their own uh, political trajectories, political biases, their experiences, and have difficulty understanding the other sides, either their motivations or predicting what the response of the other side would be. That is true today, in my opinion, as as much as it was true back in 1962. Do you think we're in as perilous a historical moment now then as as the one we're talking about? Uh, Well, what what I can say is that we are now in the pretty much uncontrolled nuclear arms race. Um, and that is the situation uh, that reminds me about the world before 1962. And the world before 1962 is uncontrolled arms race with no clear rules of, of, of this race and competition. Uh, produces on its own crises like the Cuban Missile Crisis because uh, the, 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 the rules are not clear. Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, scared Kennedy and Khrushchev enough to restart the process of negotiation. 
1963, they signed the first arms control agreement, which was the nuclear uh, partial nuclear test ban, not allowing nuclear uh, tests in the atmosphere or in the water. And then after that followed a number of other of other um, arms control and arms reduction agreements going all the way into the Reagan and Gorbachev era in the nineteen uh, in the uh, late nineteen eighties. By now, all of those agreements signed uh, during the Cold War, with the exception of the test ban, are gone. And uh, uh, the um, rearmament is taking really place. Again, uh, the, the latest news from, from the rearmament front, of course, come from the UK with the decision of the government to uh, raise the cap by 40% or more than 40% on the um, uh, nuclear um, on, on, on nuclear arsenal related to the uh, Trident uh, missiles and Trident uh, submarines. But again, that's just the latest piece of the news. China is already there. Russia and the United States are already there. So uh, we are maybe not in the middle of the new arms crisis, but we are certainly at the beginning of it. And uh, um, again, I, I hope uh, we will not need another another um, Cuban crisis type of a situation to, to remind the world that uh, it's it's time to go back to the to the negotiation table. Try to introduce uh, the rules and verification and so on and so forth. It can be more difficult to do now than it was in the past for a number of reasons, and one of them is the rise of uh, um, cyber warfare. Right, where um, the major question is like it was the question during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay, you sign an agreement, but how can you verify that the other side? follows the, the and, 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 and sticks to the commitments. And they were trying to verify those things in the early 1960s with U-2 overflights, which were bringing one international crisis to another. Then eventually satellites solved the problem of verification. But we don't have a, an equivalent of satellites today to deal with the with the um, cyber warfare. So again, uh, the, the situation is similar, but in certain ways it's potentially is more dangerous than it was back then. That was Serhi Plocky. His book, Nuclear Folly, A New History of the Cuban Missile Crisis, is available now published by Penguin. There's a link in today's show notes. Serhi is also writing a feature on the Cuban Missile Crisis for BBC History magazine. Keep an eye out for that in our upcoming July issue. If you enjoyed this episode and want to know more about the Cuban Missile Crisis, well, back in July 2020, Mark White answered listener questions on the nuclear standoff for our Everything You Wanted to Know series. You can find that by searching for Cuban Missile Crisis in our back catalogue. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for the latest episode in our series on Britain's Greatest Prime Ministers, in which Charlotte Riley nominates Clement Attlee. We'd love to know what you think about History Extra. So we're running a survey to ask you what you love about the podcast and what you think we could do better. 
It should only take five minutes to fill out and you'll be entered into a prize draw for the chance to win one of seven £100 Voucher Express gift cards. The prize draw is open to UK residents only and runs until Sunday the 16th of May. So to have your say, just head to bit.ly forward slash HEPodSurvey, where you can also find the full terms and conditions. That's bit.ly slash HEPodSurvey.